to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. Is he benevolent? Is he just? Is he good? Is he loving? The natural attributes do not tell us that. You see, it's the moral attributes that we must look to to discover the answers to those questions. And of course, those questions are vitally important to us. This absolutely powerful God, is he kind? Is he good? What is he like? Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Genesis. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1, in a message titled, The Attributes of God. Now, here's Pastor Brian. Let's open up to Genesis chapter 1, and we'll return once again to the first four words of Genesis. In the beginning, God. As many of you know, in our first few studies here in Genesis, we've been focusing our attention on the subject of God himself. Now, we're doing this for the very practical reason that our experience of eternal life in the qualitative sense, and perhaps you remember we talked about that last time, eternal life in the qualitative sense, this this quality of life that has been given to us, but our experience of this eternal life increases as our knowledge of God increases. Remember what Jesus said in his prayer to the Father. We pointed this out in the previous study. John chapter 17, he said, And this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God. And as we pointed out previously, so many of our problems, struggles, and difficulties are due to our ignorance of God and his ways. And so we're intentionally spending some time as we're moving into this great book of Genesis, we're intentionally spending some time just meditating on God himself. Now, in our last study, we considered the nature and some of the attributes of God. And in studying the nature and the attributes of God, we're setting ourselves up for a greater experience of God's power, his peace, his grace, and his love. The more I get to know the Lord, the better I know him, the better I understand who he is, that is practically beneficial to me. It lends itself to a greater experience of power. I realize that there's nothing hard for the Lord. It lends itself to a greater experience of peace. I realize that there's nothing that's too big for God. There's no problem that he can't handle. 
It gives me a greater experience of his grace because I begin to understand how full of grace he is. Gives me a greater experience of his love. Now, as we looked at the nature of God in our previous study, just a quick reminder, uh, we considered the incomprehensibility of God and that he is also infinite, eternal, immutable, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, and finally, we looked at the triunity of God. We want to turn tonight to what are sometimes called the moral attributes of God. Now, the natural attributes that we considered in our last study, they tell us about the being of God, who God is in his, in his being, but the moral attributes, they tell us about his character. By looking solely at the natural attributes of God, if we, if we just left it with that, the only thing that we could know for sure about God is that he is a being of absolute and unfathomable power. That is what we learn from looking at the natural attributes of God. Is he benevolent? Is he just? Is he good? Is he loving? The natural attributes do not tell us that. You see, it's the moral attributes that we must look to to discover the answers to those questions. And of course, those questions are vitally important to us. This absolutely powerful God, is he kind? Is he good? Is he gracious? What is he like? In Exodus 34, you don't need to turn there, but I'd like to quote from Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. We have God's own declaration, in a sense, of his moral attributes. Let me read it to you. And the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So this is is one particular passage where you have God expressing his moral attributes, not in an exhaustive sense, but here we're sort of seeing in the essence of of who God is in his character. And so as we look at the moral attributes tonight, we want to break it down into three general attributes and then look at some of the, the attributes under each one of those headings, beginning, first of all, with the attribute of holiness, the holiness of God. When we talk about the holiness of God, what we are saying is that God is essential, absolute purity. As John tells us in his first epistle, he said, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This is such a wonderful thing to know. There's no hint of of any sort of darkness in God. There's nothing that's perverse. There's nothing except absolute purity. 
within the nature of God. He is holy. Holiness, God's holiness, is the theme of the law and the prophets. If there's one attribute that stands out in the Old Testament, it is the holiness of God. This is something that is brought up over and over and over again in the law and also in the prophets. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah alone, the Lord is referred to as the Holy One some 30 times. That's just in Isaiah. Now, remember, or perhaps you remember, in the sixth chapter of Isaiah, as Isaiah has this vision of the Lord seated upon the throne, high and lifted up, the train of his robe is filling the temple. And remember, the seraphim are there surrounding the throne. And what is it that they are crying? They are crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And so this this attribute of God's holiness is in many ways the foremost attribute of God. It was God's holiness that caused Job to cry out, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. It was God's holiness that caused Moses to tremble in fear. It was God's holiness that put Daniel face down on the ground as though he were dead. It's God's holiness that prevents sinful men from seeing him and living. You remember what Paul told us, that God dwells in the light that no man can approach. God said to Moses, when Moses said, Lord, I, I want to see your face. Moses was saying, Lord, I want to see your essence. I want to see who you are in your totality. And God says to Moses, Moses, no man can see me and live. Now, it's interesting that this attribute is arguably the chief attribute of God. But it seems that these days especially these days, this is an attribute that we have largely forgotten. It's certainly been long forgotten in our culture. And it has also been forgotten in many of our churches. But this is, this is the prime attribute that comes forth, as I said, in the Old Testament. And we're not without reminders of this attribute in the New Testament as well. As a matter of fact, we are exhorted as believers in Jesus Christ to be holy for the reason God is holy. And of course, Peter takes that passage from the Old Testament and applies it to the church. We're also told by Paul to perfect holiness, to seek to perfect holiness in the fear of God. And then we're told by the author of the epistle to the Hebrews that without holiness, No man shall see the Lord. So even though this is an attribute that we sort of neglect today, it is still very much the foremost attribute of God himself. Now, there are other attributes that are related to the holiness of God. Righteousness. We speak of God being holy. We speak of God being righteous. And although there are distinctions, there are similarities in, in these terms, but, but there are slight distinctions as well. I like this definition of righteousness, God being righteous. 
It is the righteousness of God is God's love of holiness. God's love of everything that is pure and his love of everything that is right and everything that is good. That's what righteousness is. It's God's love of holiness. Justice, on the other hand, the justice of God is God's abomination of sin. God abominates sin. He hates it. And again, this is, this is something that we don't hear a whole lot about today. God's hatred for sin. And today we have, of course, um, a huge emphasis on the love of God, which is, is a good thing, and we're going to tie it all together before we finish here tonight. But God's love was never intended to exclude his holiness, his righteousness, or his justice. God abominates sin. He hates sin. He loathes it. It's disgusting to him. And I think if we had a a better understanding of that, we would be a little bit more hesitant, a little bit more thoughtful, a little bit more reluctant, perhaps before we indulged in sin. But so often today we see it. Where a person says, oh, well, you know, God's loving and he's merciful and I know he will forgive me. I've heard that many times. I know I'm going down the wrong path. I know this is something that the Lord doesn't want me to do. But, you know, I know in my heart that God loves me and I really love God. And I know, you know, I know God's going to forgive me. Now, that might be true. Might be true. The question, of course, is will you ever repent if you head down that road? But the fact of the matter remains, regardless of that, God abominates sin. He hates it. And he hates it as much today as he's ever hated it. Boy, if there's one message that that comes out really clearly in the Old Testament, it's God's hatred for sin. And we see in the Old Testament how God dealt swiftly and and so often quite severely with sin. But then we have the wrath of God. And again, these things are connected. The holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of God, the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God in distinction from the justice or the righteousness of God? The wrath of God is God's punishment of sin. God will punish sin. God must punish sin. Again, we, we live in a world, as, as you well know, I don't have to convince you of this, we live in a world where men are not just simply sinning as they always have, but they're aggressively sinning. They're flaunting their sin. They're shaking their fist in God's face, basically. And this is the, the kind of thing that as we read the biblical history, as we look at history in general, this is the kind of attitude that ultimately brings about the wrath of God, God's punishment of sin. And so the holiness of God, this is where we start. But from there, we move to the goodness of God. God is good. How many times are we told throughout the Psalms, the Lord is good? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Many times over, we are told that. Jesus, of course, told us that God alone is good. There's there's none good. 
but one, and that is God. And so what are we talking about when we talk about the goodness of God? Well, we're talking about the fact that God is benevolent, that he is just, that he is righteous, that he is kind, that he is patient, that he is merciful, that he is gracious. All of these things are true as well. You see, these attributes don't, they're not in conflict with each other. They don't cancel one another out. The goodness of God doesn't cancel out the holiness of God. The holiness of God doesn't cancel out the goodness of God. God is holy, righteous, just. He's also good. He's good. He's benevolent, just, righteous, kind, patient, merciful. And I love the way David summed it all up in Psalm 103, verses 8 through 13. He said, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust." I think that that is one of the most beautiful descriptions of the goodness of God. As you read through those statements there, you see that God is good. He is good. I love that. As a father pities his children. That speaks volumes to me. I know what that feels like. You know, when I was a kid, as I've mentioned to you before, I was brought up in Roman Catholicism, nominally. We were not in any, by any means, devout. But we went to church, and I actually went to Catholic school as a boy. And I remember one time the priest saying something that really bothered me. He said, God doesn't have any feelings. God, it doesn't phase God if you love him or believe in him or hate him or disbelieve in him. God is, he's so far above and beyond us. He's not affected by any of those type of things. Now, what I discovered later when I started reading the Bible is this poor priest had evidently not read the Bible. Because he didn't know what he was talking about. Because what we're reading right here, it's describing a feeling, isn't it? It's describing an emotion. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. I have in my mind this picture of my oldest son when he was small. And he was quite a terror, as most little boys are. And, you know, he used to just bolt through the house and... You know, you never knew where he was going to land. And... But I remember watching him one day as he was racing through the house. And he, he was headed toward the corner of the cabinet. 
that pointed corner of the cabinet. And his head was right at the level of the point of that cabinet. And, and I remember watching as he was running without paying any attention to what he was doing. He was running full blast toward this thing. And there I was as a father pitied his child. My heart was beating. I was just, no. I, I just knew he was going to collide with this thing and he was going to split his head open. In the words of Maxwell Smart, <laughs> he missed it by this much. <laughs> I mean, when his little head, you know, went under that thing, I sighed a sigh of relief. It was just, I can't believe that he didn't split his head open. But I remember vividly to this day, this is probably 22 years ago, I remember the feelings that I had of great compassion and pity on my child. He was going to get hurt. God is good. He is benevolent. He is kind patient, merciful, gracious, all of those things. And of course, we know so much more in some ways than even David did the extent of his grace through Jesus and the revelation that has come to us through the new covenant. So God is good. And all of these things are are wrapped up in that, his mercy and his grace and his compassion and all all of those things. But God is good also has another aspect, and that is he is the standard of good. God is the standard of good. What God approves is good because he is good and he alone can approve what is good. So we live in a world today where there's a ton of confusion over what is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong. And there are multitudes of opinions about that, aren't there? A lot of people who will say, well, you know, who are you to tell me what's right or wrong? I don't believe that there's any such thing as right or wrong, some people would say. And, of course, in one sense, if it's just my idea or my standard, then they've got a point. Why is my opinion any more valid than their opinion? But you see, this is where we have an absolute standard that arises above everybody else's opinion. And this is the standard set by God. So how do we know what is right and what is wrong? We know what is right because God told us what is right. We know what is wrong because God told us what is wrong. You know, you can come to a place, and people have come to that place and still are coming there. You can come to a place where you no longer have a gauge uh, to determine what's right or wrong within you. Your conscience is no longer a capable guide. Join Pastor Brian in the studio as he shares about this month's resource. One of my favorite topics is history, and church history is a part of that. 
I've read many church history books, and I recently read a fantastic book by an author named John Dixon, and the book is called Bullies and Saints. And the subtitle is An Honest Look at the Good and Evil in Christian History. And John is an Australian. He is an apologist. He is also a historian, and he does an excellent job at looking at both the good and the bad things in church history. So if you're into history, I think knowing church history is important for Christians. I highly recommend Bullies and Saints by John Dixon. Again, this month's resource is a book titled Bullies and Saints, An Honest Look at the Good and Evil of Christian History by John Dixon. You can order the book Bullies and Saints by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it and then click on the donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book The Bullies and Saints by John Dixon to help you understand both the good and bad historical contributions of Christianity. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue next time with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Genesis. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.